0: Okay, as you're joining me on page 47, I want to just show you this book right here. It's called Creed, it's Creed's Confessions and Catechisms, a Reader's Edition. It's published by Crossway. It's a real pretty book, nice pages, clean layout. But if you want to have access um, to all a bunch of, well, Creed's Confessions and Catechisms in one place, this is a great one to get. Just so you know, Crossway publishes a bunch of different ESV Bibles. They're the ESV publisher. And they have one called the Creeds and Confessions Bible. And if you buy the Creeds and Confessions Bible, this is what's in the back of the Bible. So if you already have that Bible, then you don't need to get this. If you don't have that Bible, you can think about getting this if you want, if you want to have more exposure to Creeds and Confessions. Um, and I've just copy and pasted from this book the the creeds and confessions that we're looking at in this class so far. I want to pick up where we left off last week. We are on the brink of getting into the Nicene Creed, finally. But on page 47, the bottom of the page, we have this uh, black box that reminds us of these crazy, complicated uh, Greek words that were used to describe what the Bible teaches about God. And we looked at a bunch of the history that was taking place and some controversies and people talking past each other with different definitions. But we're going to be exposed to these words again when we read the Nicene Creed this evening. So it's the word usia. God is one usia. He He is one being. He is one essence. He is one nature. He is one. He is the one God. But he is three hypostases. He is three persons. He's not three gods. He's one God in three persons. And so they would use the word hypostases or hypostasis, the particular and distinct form in which the divine nature exists in Father, Son, and Spirit, making them Two, three distinct persons. Now, why are we seeing this? Because if you are, uh, if you're around this church very often or whatever your background is, you can hear the word, you should hear the phrase very often in a Christian life that we worship one God in three persons, the Trinity. And if you're familiar with it, commonplace phrase, but this is where the language is coming from. And it's pulled from the Bible, it's distilling and summarizing what the Bible teaches, but if you compile all the scriptures together about what the Bible says about who God is in himself, he's one God, he's three persons. And so that's that's where this language comes from. Um, So we're about to get into the Nicene Creed, but I just want to ask if there's any questions of what we looked at so far in these previous weeks, or especially with this complicated language that we're looking at, before we spend the rest of our evening just focused on the Nicene Creed. Questions, clarifications, anything along those lines. All right. So if you turn to page 49, on the right column, I'm going to read to you in its entirety, it's short, the Nicene Creed in the right column. And we learned last time that the Nicene Creed was initially written in 325, more controversy and heresy was swirling around the Eastern Church, that required another meeting in 381 where they clarified and filled out some more details. And so on page 48, you can see there in the left column is the Nicene Creed from 325 and the right column is from 381, you can compare that on your own of how they have, um, how they edited it. and then here in 49 you can see how the Apostles Creed on the left from the 100s, you know about 200 years previous serves as the skeletal structure for what they write in the Nicene Creed. So now if you remember what's going on before I read this, is creeds do not replace the Bible. Creeds summarize the Bible they became they become like a gospel tract, so to speak. That was something that was memorable. It was memorizable. It was recited by the church at baptisms and the Lord's Supper and more to summarize what the Bible teaches. And so what we're going to do this evening is just go line by line through this and look at scriptures to see uh, where they're pulling these ideas from so that we can see that this is not... Um, as some would say, well, this is man-made doctrines foisting their ideas on Scripture. It's the other way around. It's, it's men submitting themselves to Scripture and drawing out the ideas of Scripture and then conveying it to us in this form, in a creedal form. So, here it is. The Nicene Creed from 381. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. In the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Amen. So there's this beautiful statement from 381 given to us by a group of pastors who fought with their lives to preserve biblical integrity, to preserve the gospel for us to clarify what those core elements of the faith are, and this is the Nicene Creed. So what I want to do now is we're going to walk through it clause by clause and I'll pause in between the clauses to take any questions that you might have or anything along those lines but we're seeing this statement hammered out as a middle road against heresies on the left and the right confusions of who god is and in the gospel and we've seen that the major heresy that is the driving force behind this was arianism that Heresy, where Arius taught there was when the Son was not, that Jesus was a created being. And lest we think that that's an old dead heresy, we know that Jehovah's Witness are modern-day Arians uh, who still uh, believe Jesus is a created being and more. So let's walk through this. Let's, um, for some of you, this is going to be review. You know these scriptures. You could even add scriptures to this. For some of you, this is going to be news of seeing how the Bible explains these things to us. So we can't rush past the first statement, I believe in one God. Right, so this course is called Credo. That's from the Latin creed, meaning I believe. It's a confession. And so the statement says, I believe in one God. And if you look at the structure the Nicene Creed there on page 49... This phrase, I believe, connects with each member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they say to us, I believe, that we need to believe, faith is not a mystical, subjective impression rooted in your emotions and intuitions. Faith does not depend upon how you feel. Faith does not depend upon impressions that you have or what you think. Our faith is rooted in an external reality. Our faith is rooted in the self-revelation of the true and living God who has acted in history, in specific times, through specific people. We have faith in God as he's revealed his person, his plan, his promises and provisions in the inspired scriptures. So here's a book. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And our faith is not in our faith. We don't trust in how strong we believe. We don't trust in our feelings. There's this external thing from us, which we believe in. So we are saved by grace through faith. And our faith is not of our own making We believe in what God communicates to us in his word. So we don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in God's revelation. And and faith is so important. And we've seen in the various heresies we've looked at in the previous weeks that heretics often want to add your feelings, your obedience, your works to your salvation that's why the creed is so important. It's, I believe. It doesn't say, I believe, and I do these things. It simply says, I believe. So, for example, consider these passages. Here's Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 and 6. Here's some definitions of faith for us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. For whoever would ever draw near to God must believe two things. He exists and, this is amazing, he rewards those who seek him. So this would be example of faith. Or how about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one can boast, for we are His workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this great and beautiful passage reminds us that our salvation is nothing of us and nothing in us in all of God. That's why the creeds are creeds. That's why they're statements of faith, of I believe. Beautiful passage, Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by works in the Son of God. It's not what it says, is it? So again, the beauty of the Christian life, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And one more, Galatians 3 The Apostle Paul here is talking about the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between the new covenant of Jesus, the old covenant of Moses. He says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law of Moses was our guardian, our tutor, a teacher, a nanny. The law was our guardian until Christ came, so the law was temporary until Christ came, in order that we would be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And more and more passages could be uh, extolled and 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 read and more, but. This is why creeds are called creeds. We as Christians are a faith that is not based on works, but the free gift of God. So any, any questions or comments on simply that? Yes, Diane.
1: So since uh, Catholics uh, add works, are they considered heretics?
0: By us, yes. That's why we protest. Testing. Oh, okay. Um, So I'm backtracking a little bit to where you talked about uh, how creeds uh, summarize the Bible. Would you say that uh, some other translations of the Bible can kind of fall into creeds? Keep going with that. What do you mean? Um, Well, because I noticed last week I, I hang out with another Christian group and they use the recovery version. And I don't want to say I got into a conflict. I'd say more like a confrontation because I was using the ESV version instead of the recovery version. And, uh, yeah, we kind of – Anyone know what the recovery version is? Oh. So – Yeah. Yeah. As in like I'm recovering – It's more
2: thought for thought, which kind of –
0: Yeah. So so good question – Um, There are basically more or less three different schools of thought in how you translate from the Greek and Hebrew into whatever source language, in this case English. There's a thought-for-thought, essentially literal word-for-word, and paraphrase. So ESV, the NASB, New American Standard, King James, New King James, um, and then now the LSB, the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, which is the new NASB translation that's been MacArthurized. It's a good translation. All of those translations are trying to make the, the Hebrew and Greek, even the word order, transparent right behind the English. Whereas Thought for Thought, like NIV, is going to read it regurgitate it in my mind and then say it again the problem with thought for thought is that they are inconsistent with translating the same greek or hebrew words the same way so a good way to study your bible is to do a word study let's say you want to study the word love well there's four different main greek words for love so you, let's say you want to do a word study on agape or phileo two of the greek words if you're, if you're trying to look that up in your NIV, you can't do it because they use different English words to translate the same Greek word in this case. Whereas ESV and other translations, NASB, are going to use the same word almost always. And then paraphrases is just someone trying to talk to a five-year-old and explain the Bible to them and add a bunch of stuff to it. So I, I recommend the ESV or um or the Christian standard bible csb it's also a good one but anyways yeah so we can talk more about that if you want i just
3: i just do have some background with the recovery version mm-hmm. because i spent uh about 8 years with a group that has the recovery version so i do know about that and basically um you know it is it is a very good version but The thing is, is that uh, the people that use that are part of a group that that only listens basically to the doctrines that came from one man, from Witness Lee. And so if you, and they also have extensive uh, footnotes in most of their recovery versions, although they have some without, but but, um, they... If you are not using the recovery version and you're part of that group, then that means that you're not listening to this person that they feel is like an apostle.
0: Don't listen to that person. Stay away. (laughs) Don't go back. Don't go back to that group again. I'm actually serious. Uh, Anytime that anytime that happens, that's um, technical term is sketchy. Okay, any questions on us? I believe in the faith component? So it's something that we as Christians, especially if you're around the church a lot, we take for granted, and we just, it's a, it's a, it's a reason to pause and think about the grace of God in Christ, that you don't earn your salvation, and you don't keep your salvation, God keeps you. Uh, so praise God for that. But, the text goes on, I believe in one God. So this is where we're going to get into some of the, the, the languages all right, so, so one God, not only is God the only true God there is, we're going to get technical here, not only is God the only true God there is, and there is no other, God does not have parts. So you need to think about that. God cannot be divided into pieces. He is one usia, He is one substance, he is one essence, he is one being. You cannot take a pizza cutter and divide God into the Jesus part of God and the spirit part of God and then the father part of God. So that's where we had that wonderful conversation at the end of last time on perichoresis. And you can Google Kevin DeYoung Perichoresis. We try to figure out how to spell it, but that's where uh, we we got that quote from Augustine, where Augustine says, and this, he, "He might have written this in the early 400s." Each are in each. All in each. Each and all, and all are one. So when we talk about one God, God does not have parts. So if you've ever heard of the simplicity of God, if you've ever heard that word before, that's, that's what that word means, that God is, he is all at once himself. So when, when Jesus says, we'll, we'll get to this in a few minutes, but that's an important thing to understand. So when when they were guarding the idea of he is one Usia, you have the Arians saying, no, Jesus is, well, he's a created being. But then we learned about those guys called the originists. And they believe that, well, Jesus is one with God, but he's less divine. And what we need to be aware of is that Jesus is not created and he's not less divine. He is, when you see Jesus, the entire Trinity was is within him. And if you see the Father, the entri- entire Trinity is in the Father. So, again, when Augustine said, each is in each, all are in each, each is in all, and all are one, it's getting this idea that when we say that we're talking about one God in three persons, he doesn't have pieces and parts, you can't cut parts off of him, any questions on that simple idea, yes, Danny, what you said about the each of this, this, and that. It's like, they're
3: trying to confuse
0: you. <laughs> the beautiful thing is that God is confusing in his simplicity. One of those amazing things that we're getting into these texts and what we're trying to do is we, 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 we are, well, we're standing on the shoulders of our grandfathers and they're being faithful to the Bible. It says this, It says this. How do you fit that together? I guess like this. And then that clarity... Remember the statement from a couple weeks ago. Theological clarity is born out of theological controversy. So if you're walking with a friend... And the friend says, Jesus is a created being. How are you going to respond to that? If Jesus is less divine than the Father and someone and you say no he's not and then and then your friend says prove it what are you going to do and that's that's kind of what we're we're doing here so so one god so we Deuteronomy 4:35 and 39 to you is shown that you might know that the Lord is God there is no other besides him know therefore today lay it on to your lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above, and on the earth beneath, there is no other. So, if God says there's no other God, I guess He's right. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah forty four, eight. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Isaiah forty-five, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And finally, Jesus in Mark twelve. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeking and seeing that he answered them well. Asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's just an, If you just pause there, that's where this idea comes from. I believe in one God. It's a kind of a strange way to talk. But we look all over Scripture, and then here's Jesus saying the greatest commandment. We are to confess that the Lord God, he is one. Not just the only God, but He is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So God is not a God of parts. There is only one God who exists, and He is one. And this is important because this is going to set us up for the Trinitarian part of things. Yes, God is one, but he's three persons. So before we move into the next part, any questions about God not being divided into pieces? Or God being one usia, one being, one essence? All right. Oh yeah, there's one. Jonathan Edwards famous one the three persons are not parts correct but they are three persons yes okay makes perfect sense huh. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. So the first, when we talk about our triune God, the Father, often called the Lord or simply God in the New Testament, usually when the New Testament refers to God, the first person of the Trinity is in view. And here the confession is that the Father is Almighty. So Almighty is that statement pulled from the book of Revelation, other places, that he is within himself all power at once. He's the creator, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Important statement. The implication there is what we don't see, the unseen realm. So think of angels, angelic beings, angels and demons. He is the creator of them all, including uh, the devil. The devil is not, or any demons, any fallen angels are not rival beings to God like yin and yang or anything along those lines, but the Father is almighty over all things. So you have Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or this awesome passage from the end of Job 38 and following The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And on the text goes. The Lord is the maker. And then Acts 17. Paul is preaching to the Athenians. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live, move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. And now He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You just think here of all the theology that we can't unpack. God is the creator. He does not need anything and is not served by us. Rather, he's the giver of all things. He made everything from Adam then Noah to live all over the earth. But check this out. Why do you live where you live and why were you born when you were born? Because God sovereignly determined when and where you would live so that you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, back in Genesis 5, I want to show this to you. Because look at what they're saying. Why do we call the first person of the Trinity the Father? Well, the simple answer is that Jesus told us to pray our Father who's art in heaven. Yes. But I want to show you something else here in Genesis 5. Genesis 5... This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, note this. When God created Adam, man, he made him in the likeness of God. Okay? But then you go to verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he, note it, he fathered a son. Okay? But look what the text says. In his own likeness, after his image. And named him Seth. So I italicize and underline these because you can see the connective flow of the Hebrew thought here. If you work in reverse, Adam has Seth. Seth is the image and likeness of Adam. But then before in verse 1, Adam is the image and likeness of God. So that's why we say that when Adam and Eve were made in Genesis 1 and 2... That they were not just, part of being an image bearer of God is being made son and daughter of God. That, that relationship. So the, the paternity of God, his fatherhood, is from the beginning. He's been father. And then we can see that in Malachi. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And Malachi is speaking of the covenant community there of of israel so that's all that we're given that's all the creed says regarding the father the father almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible so the father is first any questions or comments about why we call the first person father and in his his role Moving on, now we're going to get into it. So remember the controversy or all these heresies swirling around about the identity of Jesus. So here's how they convey our belief in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one usia, one substance, with the Father, by whom all things were made. So so before we get into this phrase by phrase, notice what they're doing. On the one hand, the effort is to, to distinguish Jesus from the Father, yet on the other hand, to equate the Father and the Son as one God. And they're trying to communicate that in this language. If you if you have your notes, if you have page 32 handy, that can help you... Um, So we have this diagram, and with their words, they're drawing this picture. With their words, they're drawing this picture. And they're doing it beautifully and poetically, I might add. And you can see this inner triangle in this image where the Father is not the Son, but the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. The Father is God, and the Son is God. So they're the one God, they're one substance, but they're the two persons at this point that we're talking about. So in one Lord Jesus Christ, let's pick this apart. So if you look at the creed, if you flip back and just keep looking at page 49, we know the first statement, I believe in one God. The Father Almighty, on it goes, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe is grammatically connected. So it's another, even though the word I believe isn't mentioned, it's implied. It's the second statement of belief. And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. And the language is technical. Lord expresses not only Jesus' kingship, but it alludes to the name title used of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Lord. Technically speaking, Jesus was not named Jesus until Joseph named him so. So he was the, he's the eternal son who, when he became incarnate, was given the name Jesus. And Christ in the Greek, or Messiah in the Hebrew, it's not Jesus' last name. It's the title of his office. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what um, Christos or Mashiach, Christ or Messiah, means the long-promised one ever since Genesis 3.15. So he's the one Lord Jesus Christ. Now we get into some of the beautiful language. So what is Jesus? Who is he? Well, now they're going to try to explain Jesus in relation to the Father. And they're going to use Bible language. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. So they're trying to poetically, but really make sense of what does it mean that Jesus is only begotten. So remember our history. Remember what Arius was doing? Arius was a theology teacher. He was in Alexandria, Egypt. He reads that Jesus has begotten, sounds like Jesus has made, like he's a created being. So he writes the songs, gathers the crowd, teaches them the chant, there was when the sun was not. Why do you say that, Arius? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus is a created being. And then that caused the true believers to say, no. Well, then what does it mean that Jesus has begotten, but not created? That's what they're communicating here. So begotten is used three times in this statement. And that word begotten in the Greek is monogenes. What does that mean? So it expresses sonship. But it also expresses rank, not creation. So, for example, in Genesis 22 2, God has told Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain and to sacrifice him. Isaac is uh, probably a teenager. And God says, Take your son, your only begotten son, in the Greek translation your one and only son, your monogenes, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as uh, on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. What's the problem with that statement? Is Isaac Abraham's one and only son, literally? No. There's an older brother, right? Uh, Ishmael. Isaac was not Abraham's only son since Ishmael was born first. This is where we need to change our definitions a bit and conform them to the Bible's thinking. So when that Greek word monogenes or only begotten is used, it is primarily speaking of rank among sons. So it always is talking about sonship, um, and it's talking about rank. So when Jesus is called as the Father's only begotten Son of God, it is not saying that He is created. But this is the language the Bible uses. So we're not going to change the Bible's words. We're going to conform our understanding to the Bible. So this is where they explain. Jesus is the only Son, only begotten Son of God. He's begotten of the Father before all worlds, which can sound like the Arian idea that Jesus is the first of creation, and then he creates all things. But to make sure that they're not misunderstood to be Arians, they also say he is God of God. Okay, what does that mean? A little bit clearer here. Light of light. So we heard last time a quote from Athanasius, talking about how the sun simultaneously is admitting, emitting light, and the light is the same substance as the sun, but the light is distinguished from the sun. They're using, perhaps, Athanasius' language here to describe, Well, what does it mean that Jesus is eternally begotten? It means the same thing as light of light. And lest they not be confused, he is very God of very God. So Jesus is not less God than the Father, contrary to the originists. Remember those guys? Jesus is the same but less divine. Confusing language. So here they're clearing it up. No, he's very God of very God. Jesus is not more God than the Father. He's not less God than the Father. They are the one Usia, one God. And he is begotten, not made. So there's no ambiguity. There's a difference between the two. He's not created, he's begotten. He's a son, he's first in rank, but he's uncreated. He is very God of very God. So for example, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, very important text in the New Testament, talking about the fulfillment of who Jesus is. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this text is used in Acts, it's used in Hebrews, to describe the role and rank of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. It also speaks to, um, stay with me, in his humanity that he's the last Adam and the son of God. So there's like a dual meaning going on there. He's the eternal son, but when he became flesh, he also became the last Adam to do what Adam should have done and he did for us. Stop there. Questions, comments, clarifications. I don't know if I can make it clearer. (laughs) I know it's not very clear. Ask for a friend. Nothing, you guys? Nothing? Really? Uh, Yes, Anita.
1: So when you say rank. When I say what? Rank. Like as in. The rank of the son. Yes, I, I was just wondering this because heard something about it today. Um, submission to the Father. Uh, does the Father's will? I've never, I've never heard, and I don't know. Does Does the Father ever submit to the Son?
0: No. So there's, um, within God, there's one will within the Trinity. Jesus in his incarnation. So it gets tricky for us. Like if we're going to get specific, like I said, Jesus was not named Jesus until the Holy Spirit granted conception to Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. So that's when he's named Jesus. And this is, this is, so the questions that come from the creed are, okay, we've figured out the Trinity, so to speak. But then what does it mean that Jesus is God and man? And that's what the Anastasia Creed and Chalcedonian definition will be will we get into next. So with Jesus in his incarnation and in his life, we know in John said, "My will is to do the Father's will." They had one one will together. But Jesus in his humanity was submitted to the Father. Um, and then when it talks about only begotten in terms of rank, I don't have it in here. But think about Hebrews. How one of the arguments in Hebrews is that that. Um, Jesus became like us. He had to become like his brothers. And so we are brothers and sisters of Christ with God as our Father, in the family of God. And then just um, to add another detail, the centerpiece of the gospel then is the doctrine of adoption. right? So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we follow the prince of the power of the air. We are sons of disobedience, Ephesians two. But then, what God does in the gospel, when we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins, we are adopted as daughters and sons. So we're brought back into God's family, and so we can call Him Father. So this is contrary to the the liberal uh, idea that the the brotherhood of humanity and the fatherhood of God, and we're, and we're all His children. Um. I don't know if some, I don't know if I've, well, I'll repeat the story if you've, I was at a YWAM camp and I was there and I took, um, I was with a group that, uh, took unbelieving Basque students from Northern Spain, Southern France, and we took them to this camp for a week, uh, as part of evangelism and the speaker, the first evening, was God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, you're his son, you're his daughter, you're his kid, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. The second night was God's sending you to hell, God's sending you to hell, God's sending you to hell. And when we got back to the rooms, these unbelieving uh, teenage boys were angry. And they said, what kind of God sends his kids to hell? And then we actually had to correct the error of the speaker because he had the gospel wrong. The whole point of the gospel is to be adopted into God's family because we're not in God's family. That's what happened in the fall. What was lost in the fall was our sonship and daughtership to God, among other things. And what's regained in Christ is adoption. So when we say Jesus is only begotten and he's the son and first in rank, we're brought into that family too. But he is still our elder brother, so to speak. Yes.
2: So where does the Holy Spirit fall in all of this like,
0: family area? He falls at the end of the creed. <laughs> it's a very good question, by the way. Any other, any other questions? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Yes, Elder Ron. Old Ron. <laughs> Former... So I realize we're trying to, to understand God, and this is difficult. This is impossible. Uh, if we could back up a couple of thousand years
3: and redesign these ideas to eliminate this confusion, would that be a good idea?
0: You know, that's a really interesting thought, and I don't think that we could. And here's, and here's what I mean by that. This is from the year 381. And th- these are our grandfathers hammering this out for us. And the reason I say I don't think that we could is the 17 or so, 1600 years since then, there's never been a point in history where the church has improved upon this statement. Rather, they've accepted it. So uh, there I'm just sort of trusting in our grandparents in the faith, um, and that's about the best answer I can give you. Don't know if it's satisfying. Part of this and that, that gives a good thought. So we saw a hundred years ago in the class because that's how long it's felt. No, hundred years like in the two hundreds. There's that like guy Tertullian. And he invented the word Trinity. And that became that um, hyperlink text that you could click on to pull together all the Bible says about one God but three persons. He invented that word Trinity. Though it's not in the Bible, but it's a very helpful word to define and help think about we have a triune God. Well, this creed is kind of like an expansion on that a little bit. It's using... It's using Bible words, but conveying them in a way that's not scripture to help synthesize and make difficult sense of who God is. And um, yeah, these were brilliant minds, and it's worth spending time uh, reflecting on and thinking on. That's my speculation. So we're not done. Uh, So God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So this language qualifies begotten, not made. So as the light of the sun is inseparable from the sun itself, so too Jesus from the Father. Now, this beautiful statement, this summarizes most of the heresies that we have um, argued against so far in this class. This is against Arianism, which said Jesus is a created being. This is against modalism. Remember that one? Where God changed his mode of expression to suit the need. So, angry God in the Old Testament, gentle Jesus in the Gospels and spirit in the New Testament. He just changed his form. No, this is um, against modalism. Against those guys who followed the guy named Origen. This is against Jesus being less divine. And this is also against the Gnostics that said Jesus is a different and better being than the God of the Old Testament. With this, so think about that. With this simple poetic statement, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, that those words destroy those five heresies. and Jesus is the uncreated creator the one through whom the father made all creation before we move on any other any other questions on this part this is the this is the gets this is the technical part of the creed worthy of lots of reflection and meditation on okay it continues Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, all the hands are going up.
1: I, I'm curious about the word very. Is it is it, like, I, I just looked it up. It says in high de, in a high degree. Like, is that what in the old language it meant? Very, like, in high degree God?
0: I am not entirely sure. Okay. They, they didn't issue a commentary that I'm aware of on this when they wrote it. I wish they would have. Maybe they're trying to be very, very clear on him being very, very God of very God. Uh, they're, they're, they're not being loose or lazy with the words, that's for sure. They're, they're, they're being hyper-precise, hyper-technical. They're thinking about the errors around them. And so I think it's more than being repetitive of God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Um, very God of very God, as I understand it, links a bit more with the idea of being begotten he's very god from very god does that clear it up for you yeah i'm learning with you guys as we go through this these beautiful words so he's god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made and here it is being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made so this is back. We're on page forty-seven. The big black box. Usia. This is where that word comes in here. He is one usia with the Father. So let's get into this. So here's Colossians. This would be one of the texts in the in their minds that they're trying to summarize and explain. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this statement here, of the many verses we could go to, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is the notion of one God, one substance, as to his deity, and then as to his humanity as well. So one substance. Jesus is one usia, one nature, one essence, being of God. So Jesus is... We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is hamaousias. He is not hamaousias. So I said a few weeks ago that eternal life and death hangs on the letter I. Because that's what Arius, the heretic, who said Jesus is created, inserted an I... So when the text says he's one substance with the Father, that's different from saying he's a similar substance from the Father. Arius the heretic said Jesus is a similar being, but not the same being. And the Bible says, and orthodoxy says, no, Jesus is the same being as the Father. So this word in English, one substance, The whole difference is that letter I... How do you do an I? Okay, the I. Right there. That's the difference. It all hangs on the iota, the I. Think of John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Okay, questions, comments about... Homoousias. Jesus being one substance with the Father by whom all things were made... He's one substance, but he's begotten, not made. So all these ideas stack upon, build, and interrelate with each other where they're communicating these things about our simple God who's triune. Isn't this fun? Isn't this easy to understand? See, here's the thing. Yes, Genevieve. where it says the firstborn from the dead. what does that mean? That's a very good question. When the text says that Jesus, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus is the first of the resurrection, His death and resurrection. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we will all rise in him. Okay. All, uh, other places called he's called the first fruits, like the first set of apples to be produced on the tree. And more apples come across the season. He's the first fruits, firstborn. Very good question. Thank you for asking that. So, God is an entirely other being. Our access to Him is His self-revelation of us. It is our joy and glory to read the Bible over and over and over um, personally together and historically to understand who this God is on the one hand so that we would appreciate and marvel and wonder it's easy to say Trinity it's easy to say one God in three persons it's easy to say that but then when you stop and think about that your mind begins to explode if you think about how God has always existed and never not existed You should think about that. It's kind of scary. And it's kind of comforting. But another reason this is important to wade through this and think about it is fake Jesuses cannot save. So when Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, so this this is missionary. Meaning, to be a missionary, which we all are in different ways, whether it's across the street or across the world, we're supposed to go... And we're supposed to baptize in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That's what we're thinking about. And this is what we then begin to teach our children and each other and our disciples. What does it mean that there's one God in three persons? It means this. Do we understand it perfectly? No. Can you understand it? Yes. Can you grow in understanding? Yes. Can you understand it perfectly? No. You're welcome. So there's so here we have these grandfathers thinking about the relationship of Jesus to the Father and yet the Father not being Jesus and Jesus not being the Father. Now they're going to get into incarnation and gospel. Who for us men and women who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So, who for us in our salvation? Let's think about this for a moment. The purpose for the incarnation was on behalf of God's image bearers. Jesus did not become an angel. He did not become a grizzly bear. He did not become anything else other than a human being, a man. The incarnation, the text says, was was for our salvation. The creed does not explicitly state why men and women need salvation. However, the upcoming statements that we'll get to about Jesus' crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the judgment of the living and the dead, and the remission of sins, which are coming up, All points to the reality of our need to be saved from Jesus's judgment of our sin against God. So it's implied, but they opted not to explain sin at this point and why we need to be saved as implied later on. He came down and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. So here, Matthew 1 is going to quote Isaiah 7. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's the text above right here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The eternal... Uncreated son, second person of the Trinity, put on flesh, incarnate. The Holy Spirit miraculously granted conception in Mary. We can get into speculation about DNA. Uh, Jesus probably looked a lot like Mary. But it's this statement about the incarnation, which is what we've kind of flirted with a little bit and we'll get to in the other creeds and the calcinean definition because this is when the church now turns its attention to saying, well, no, wait a second. So if the eternal, uncreated God became a an embryo, did God change? Did he become less God? Did God... Um, mix humanity and deity together? What happened? Well, that's, those are going to be questions that arise. But for now, they simply tell us he was made a man. Why is this important? Gregory of Nazianzus, he lived in 329 to 390 in Epistle 101. He simply said this of the incarnation of Jesus. What he has not assumed has not been healed. It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. So what Jesus has not assumed, uh, put on, has not been healed. What does this mean? If Jesus was not truly man, then he could not truly save men. Gregory is saying he had to become what we are to save us from what we are to make us what he is. So what does that mean? It means Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise... Partook of the same things so that through death, Jesus, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why is it important that Jesus became a man? How come Jesus didn't just... Die in heaven. How come. How come he had to put. Flesh on. And not just flesh on. How come Jesus. Had to have a true. Full. Human nature. Well the text says. He had to be made like us. In every respect. Yet without sin. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make satisfaction, propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation is a word that describes the satisfactory sacrifice Jesus made of himself that satisfied God's wrath and just demands against us. Jesus satisfied the demands of God against us. He propitiated the Father. He paid the debt. It is finished. So this is why Gregory says, what he has not assumed has not been healed, using this old Eastern language in the 300s. So Jesus had to become us. So the simple statement, and was made man, is derived from Hebrews 2, or here's, a, here's one, Hebrews 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So the author of Hebrews is trying to explain what makes the new covenant new, and why Jesus' new covenant is superior to the old covenant, And why the Old Covenant is obsolete and passing away. And so he's making these contrasts. So indeed, under Moses' law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves... Um, But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest in the Old Testament in the temple and tabernacle enters the holy place year after year with blood, not of his own. For then Jesus would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, he already did that but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For the law, it has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't those Old Testament sacrifices have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed have no longer any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, the Old Testament ones, there's a reminder year after year of sin, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. (laughs) Now, the author of Hebrews, there's a lot of beautiful things going on there, but this text and so many others are explaining why couldn't Jesus just die in heaven? Why couldn't God just snap his fingers and remove our sins? Why was it necessary For God to become man, texts like these explain, or just as Gregory says, what he has not assumed has not been healed. It's united. It's what is united to his divinity that is saved. So the chief concern of the Nicene Creed was the doctrine of the Trinity, focused on Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, but that does not. But what does it mean that the Son of God became Son of Man? What does it mean that Jesus is man? It will take the Athanasian Creed and Chalcedonian definition to clarify that question. Was I'll pause there. Any questions about the Incarnation? Randy, or statements? I think the Incarnation is a good place to bring in uh, Jesus as the second Adam Yes. who lived the life of obedience past everything that the first Adam failed in. And I'm actually thankful that Adam did fall because what we have in Christ is infinitely greater than we would ever be as a image of the first Adam. Now we are the image of the second Adam. Amen. Sermon's over. Thank you for that, Randy. That was perfect. Thanks for coming tonight. 100% yes. And then it goes on to say, and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He, You can read the rest. I'm kind of speeding ahead. He suffered and was buried. So Jesus himself suffered, died, and was buried. Not an imposter or a phantom. Important statement, right? So, so Islam, the Quran's going to teach, especially the... Um, Quranic teachers' later interpretation of what the Quran says so in Islam are going to say that that Jesus did not suffer, did not die, and was not buried. So this is an example that as early as, well, so what, Islam is 700? David, do you know when it was? Yeah. So a couple hundred years before Muhammad was born, you, you have this, I mean, Bible. Okay, we have Bible a better but we also have the Creed so this just shows that the Creed also um, the Lord providentially allowed it to be written to anticipate future heresies right so I I rushed ahead but when it says was crucified also under Pontius Pilate um, this just challenges today Well, our scientific materialistic day and age where it's it's foolish to believe in God there's no such thing as God well, In this sense, this anticipates a rejection like that and more. You can read Isaiah 52 to 53 here. This beautiful description of the crucifixion 700 years before it happened. And then on the third day, rose again. So we have gospel, gospel, gospel here in the Nicene Creed. And you can see them pulling from 1 Corinthians 15. Favorite passage of mine. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Who's he reminding the gospel of? Unbelievers? What's your text say? Brothers. Brothers. Christians don't move on from the gospel. We move into the gospel ever deeper. We don't graduate from the gospel to other more important doctrines. The gospel is the driving doctrine of the Christian life. The Corinthians, who was a church that probably should have all been church-disciplined, He's reminding them of the gospel, because only the gospel can heal all the sins and divisions among them. I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he goes on to say, and I have it underlined, these are the matters of first importance to the gospel. There's other details to the gospel. These are the most important ones. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And number four, he appeared. Death, uh, death, burial, resurrection, and appearance. Matters of first importance. That's what's in the Nicene Creed. And he ascended into heaven. Acts 1.9. When Jesus had said these things, the disciples were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Right, they're standing there looking up. Two angels show up. "...in white robes, two men in white robes, and said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?' Isn't that a... I mean, where would you be looking? Well, I'm watching Jesus, angels. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with those angels. "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? "'This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven "'will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven.'" By the way, the clouds in the sky doesn't mean that there was more moisture on that day. It's a, um, when you read through the Bible, whenever God shows up, you have billowing clouds, thunder, fire, and more. There's a whole um, movie effects that take place, special effects that take place when God shows up. So these are the special effects of Jesus, so to speak, going to heaven and the same special effects when he returns. Just a little point. And by the way, here's a really important detail. When Jesus ascended into heaven, his body didn't fall on the ground and they saw his spirit going into heaven. Jesus physically, in his physical glorified body, is physically seated in heaven right now. Jesus is forever incarnate. And that is... Um, implied, but not dealt with in the Nicene Creed. He ascended into heaven. He sits at, I know it's weird in English, sits on the right hand of the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. There's some texts that you can read. We should read this because it's gospel. Why would they say he sits at the right hand of the Father? For example, Romans 8, verse 33 and following, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and here it is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing and no one. So he is seated at the right hand of the Father, commonly called right now his session, his seating. What's Jesus doing? He's in session. He's sitting down. He shall come again. I know I'm racing through this. I'm going to finish it and then we'll take questions for all who want to stay. He'll, he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So here are texts that talk about Christ's return. Uh, for example, Matthew twenty five forty one. These scriptures are so good just want to read them. You should read them. But on the eternal judgment, Matthew 25, 41. Then he shall say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What I want you to see here is that the duration of eternal punishment, is the same as the duration of eternal life. The reason I point that out is there's a teaching out there called annihilationism, or a teaching that says that there is no hell, Mormonism, um, kind of. But if you're going to say whatever you do to the duration of hell, you have to do to the duration of heaven. So the, so the Nicene Creed moves then on from. And this Daniel 7 passage is so awesome. Just please read it. Please read it. It's so good. It's one of the many kingdom passages of Jesus. Or come the Sunday of the Church, and we'll talk a little about his kingdom in the sermon. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. So we've seen some of these texts before. Matthew 28, the baptism formula is not just in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. So here's examples of the deity of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Notice the Holy Spirit is given the title, Lord, and job description, Giver of Life. So Jesus is the, um, you can, he's the instrument, the Father, the Father created all things through Jesus. But for example, when you read in, uh, Genesis 2, creation of Adam and the creatures, uh, they have the breath of life in them. And so the Spirit, Among the Trinity, his job is the animating principle, the giver of life. Uh, Different from being indwelt by the Spirit, which only believers have, but he is the one who gives life. And he is to be worshipped as much as the Father and the Son. And then here's a statement and he spoke by the prophets. So, he wrote the Bible, is is what that means. But there is a controversy, and um, if you're willing to stay just for a few more minutes, let me just do this controversy. If you have to get up and leave, please feel free to do so. But the controversy is the phrase, "and the son. Because it got added by the Catholics. And it made the Eastern Orthodox very angry and they excommunicated each other and split. And in the Latin, it's one word, filioque. I assume that's how you say it. So let's talk about that. So when we think about the members of the Trinity, Jesus is the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit. So when we speak of the Son as eternally begotten, in relation to the Father, the term filiation is used. Not affiliation, but it means son, filiation. When the Spirit, the Spirit, so, so Jesus is eternally begotten, but the Spirit proceeds. That's the language the Bible uses. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God but the Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. We'll get to that verse in a moment. So the writers of the Creed are using the Bible's language to describe the Spirit is never said to be begotten, but He is said to proceed. So sometimes that's called spiration. Yes. Kind of. That language developed later, so they didn't have that in, in mind. But it, it would be, I mean, the notion of, well, yes, because the term uh, "numa" for spirit means lowercase s, spirit, capital A, capital S, Holy Spirit, breath, and wind. And context determines which of those four things the word means. Um, kind of, yeah. So the phrase, and the sun, is of great controversy, and it led to the great schism between the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Roman Catholic Churches, formally in 1054, so quite a, quite a bit later. It's called filioque, controversy, because that's the Latin word behind, and the sun. And it was added to the creed probably, they don't know when, probably around 589 or later. So the creed originally said who proceeds from the Father. Stop. But then they added and the Son. Why? So Filioque and the Son was condemned by the Eastern Patriarch Photius I of Constantinople in eight sixty-four, whereas the West officially adopted the addition of the Creed in ten fourteen. The dispute is very complex. And it seems to involve the East and West talking past one another from different cultural perspectives. It appears part of the controversy, of the conflict, is about the being, the usia, the relations within the Trinity, versus how the persons of the Trinity relate to creation. It's, okay. When we think about God, there are texts in the Bible that speak of God's relation within himself— But most of the Bible talks about how God relates to his creation. When we talk about how God relates within himself, ad intra is what that's called, within himself. When God relating to creation, it's ad extra, outside himself. So a controversy, so they're fighting over whether or not does the Holy Spirit also proceed from the Son? So if you picture... um, a triangle in the Trinity. We usually draw the Father at the top and Son and Holy Spirit on the bottom. Well, this inverts the triangle where it has Father and Son at the top and Spirit in the sense of procession. And the Eastern Orthodox disagreed with that. But But here's a text. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father who proceeds from the Father. Okay, so, so Jesus is saying here that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. He doesn't, Jesus is going to send the Spirit from the Father, but here it says the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but it doesn't say the Son. So that's a strike against the Catholics. Yes, well, Carrie, let me finish this and then ask your question. Hold on to that. Or John fourteen twenty six, whom the Father will send in my name, the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7. But if I go, I will send him to you. So these John passages clearly show Jesus sending the Spirit, but it only says this, the Holy Spirit that he proceeds from the Father. But then you get texts like this. Romans 8. Look at well, Look at this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit... If the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In this one verse, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit, but he's also the Spirit of God, referencing the Father, but he's also the Spirit of Christ. So the John passages, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but here in uh, Romans 8, he's the Spirit of Christ, How about Acts 16, 7? The Spirit of Jesus. And this is a reference to the third person of the Trinity. So this is where the controversy happens. Eastern Orthodox, nope, only says proceeds from the Father. And then the Western Church, well, now wait a second. Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus. Seems like he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or here, 1 Peter 11, Spirit of Christ. So, You can decide. Yes, Carrie.
3: This is a little um, comment from the the word here that supports what you're saying um, because it's from John um, 20. um, 21, when Jesus meets the disciples in the upper room on the day of his resurrection. And he says, um, Jesus, okay, Um, okay, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit.
0: That is an excellent, excellent cross-reference. Yep. So because of those two things, that's where the controversy uh, arises and there's like th- deep theological waters that you get in but but basically in the west we have accepted filioque and the sun and the east still rejects that addition yeah go ahead
3: this may be simple but um i look at it as you know the original um the holy spirit god and jesus are one so their essence and their, whatever you called it, I can't remember, um, it's, it's just, it's from all of them. It, this Holy Spirit is part of the whole being of God.
0: Yes. Where the technicality comes in is when we speak of the Son, we speak of him as eternally begotten, but we never say that of the Father, we never say it of the Spirit. And we never say that the Father proceeds or the Son proceeds, but the Spirit proceeds. And it's coming from Scripture. So then the, so then the, the, the controversy then is, so yes, they're one, he, he is one being, absolutely. But the, the, the question is, does for the Eastern Orthodox, they're concerned that if we say that the Spirit proceeds from Jesus... It's like a new type of Arianism where the Holy Spirit is a separate God, that's their concern.
3: But if they're all part of each other, and the Spirit comes
0: to us. Yeah but, you, yeah, so, you have, to, so the, you have to flip it is, the Father is not begotten, the Father does not proceed. Right. So, so the question is, can we say the Spirit proceeds from the Son? He clearly proceeds from the Father. Jesus says that, and that, that's that's where I their that's yeah, where their, their debate is, and that's where the that's where the eternal sonship and eternal holy spiritness and eternal fatherhood, God talks to us in His Word about Himself that way, and we have to figure out okay, what's going on there? Because He is one, He can't be cut into parts, and yet the Son's eternally begotten. So, but not made. Very good question. Anything? Yeah.
4: Uh, so mine's a little bit further back. It's going on, uh, um, on incarnation, I believe. Is One of the interesting things that we always talk about as a church is um, we always talk about how God is separate from other religions because he was made flesh. And we always talk about that as a strength, and I certainly think it is. But what were some of the difficulties of when Christianity was first coming around of this point kind of getting across? Because I don't feel as if we ever really talk about that part too much.
0: Well, for them, for us, for us today, for a modern, not us, for people outside these walls, what's difficult to believe is that there's a God. That's stupid. But if you go back then... Of course everybody believed in God and the gods and the pantheon of gods and whatnot. What was stupid for them was that God would become flesh because the material world was what we need to be liberated from. The spiritual world was superior to the physical world, so they wrongly said, uh, because that's rooted in Gnosticism. God is glorified with the physicality of the world, and his glory is that we will live forever in physical bodies on the new creation. So for them back then, the idea of an incarnation um, is foolish. And then the other part of that is there are other pagan beliefs of deities procreating with women. The difference here is that the Holy Spirit just miraculously grants conception. There's no intercourse that takes place, unlike the other pagan religions, um, which would be one thing kind of set against uh, Greco-Roman Pantheon of Gods. So just moving f- yes, 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 young lady.
3: So this goes uh, back a ways too. I just find it interesting that Pontius Pilate is mentioned specifically when there's really no other other than Mary, no one else is mentioned. Why what why is that? What was the purpose of that?
0: My guess is that they are. Um, what page is that on?
3: Oh, it's just in the creed. Uh, it's. I mean, I'm way back on.
0: So oh, yeah, yeah. So w- why why they s- name Pontius Pilate? I I don't know. But here's what it does for us: it roots the cruc- crucifixion in a real, verifiable historical moment. Okay under a real, verifiable, historical Historical Roman governor. So it it just, it roots, our faith is rooted in reality, not speculation. It's one of the things I kind of talk about there is, it's just a beautiful, um, we don't worship ideas. We worship a living, breathing, risen Savior.
3: So so they were sort of dating it.
0: I I think so. Okay. Uh, Nailing it down in history. Go dig it up. Go do some archaeology type type thing. Go read the history books. So we have the Holy Spirit. He's to be worshipped. So think back to some of our conversations. Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Um, well, you can lie to him, which means that you talk to him. So yes, we can pray to the Holy Spirit. Just going back to some conversations we've had in the past. And just rifling through this, and then again, I'll, I'll, I'll close this, and, and you're, please feel free to leave if you have to. And I believe in one holy... Universal, right, lowercase c, Catholic. Catholic means universal, not the Roman Catholic Church. And apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. So Catholic means universal. So think about Ephesians 6. One body, one spirit, one hope to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all things and through all and all. So they're thinking of Ephesians 4. There's only one universal church that is only ever seen in local expressions called little local churches we are called the apostolic church because it was the apostles whom jesus commissioned by his spirit and his teaching to both go preach and write the bible or their associates who traveled with them to write what they said and we gave us the new testament i acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins what might be a potential problem with the reading of this statement? Church of, Church of Christ, yes. They believe in that if you are not baptized, you're not saved. So it's faith plus works. Now, I'd refer you back to the Judaizers. We look back as the first heresy on the second evening. For them, the gospel was the gospel Plus works equals salvation. So in Galatians, they taught you believe in Jesus and you get circumcised and you keep the law of Moses, then you can be saved. This sure sounds like I need to believe in Jesus and get baptized, then I can be saved. And that my sins aren't remitted if I'm not baptized. Could you? I mean, it sounds like that to me. It's what they're saying. I'm going to argue they're not why because the bible doesn't teach that now there is one author in the bible so you can go back and read those early notes but here here's here is the quick explanation peter when he steps up and preaches the first gospel sermon in acts chapter two says repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins thanks peter makes it sound like that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, look at this. So this is on page 62. First of all, this is a creed. It is a statement of faith. I think that that implies we're justified by faith, not works. That's what's implied. You need to believe these things to be saved. So if I need to get baptized to be saved— then it contradicts the notion of a creed that I believe. But we need, to, we need to think about Peter's words. So here in Acts 2, he says, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. That really sounds like you need to be baptized to be saved. Here's a problem. You turn the page to Acts 3.19. If you had to be baptized in order to be saved then here's where Peter makes a mistake in Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. He forgot to mention baptism here. Okay, how about this? Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 and following. I thank God I baptized none of you. Except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you're baptized in my name. Oh yeah, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Now listen to this. If baptism were necessary for salvation, this verse could not be in the Bible. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Peter's language in in, in Acts 2 and then 1 Peter 3 below right here, he says things that make it sound like baptism is necessary for salvation. What's going on here since he doesn't do it in Acts 3 and Paul says what he says in Acts 1. Baptism becomes a shorthand summary statement for all the stuff around the gospel. Meaning, I hear the gospel, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, Truly man, truly God. He died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave. I believe, and then my first act of obedience is I go public with my faith by getting baptized. So usually when someone's getting baptized, they were usually recently converted for the most part. And so Peter is using baptism as a shorthand to say, it shows that you've already been forgiven. But admittedly, his language could be twisted to make it think you have to be baptized to be saved. That's why I have these other texts in here. I look for the resurrection of the dead; we're going to get raised, and life in the world to come. I'll take a, I'll take a question. I want to read this verse. If you have to go, please go. Anita, go for it. Yeah, where is a mic? Right behind you.
1: So, I want to say that "very" also means true,
0: and I just. You you say, what's that?
1: Very also means true.
0: Very also means true. Truly God, truly God.
1: Okay, anyway, that wasn't my question. My question is, um, so I've heard baptized by the word as if the water doesn't matter as much. Have you heard that before?
0: Baptized by the word? By
1: the word. I don't know. I have a friend who says it a lot.
0: Yeah, people do weird (laughs) stuff. Um, (laughs) The ideal is you get immersed, you get dunked, because that's what baptizo means. And there's controversy, but if you can't get dunked, maybe you get shallowed, and if you can't get shallowed, you get sprinkled, but there's there's controversy there. Yeah, some, some good Baptists will only say you have to be fully immersed, but it means to immerse. Yes? So when it comes to the issue of, like,
5: how to view, when it says, baptism for the remission of sins, could you also view it as, like, Or is it pretty much saying that we should go through that process as an appraisal of our faith because baptism is like a symbol of our faith and like our understanding of the gospel. So it's more like saying you understand the gospel and
0: the church is appraising that and saying that, okay, yeah, you are. I think it's an excellent way to say it, absolutely appraisal. Because think about the whole complex of events. Matthew 28, go baptize. Jesus requires we get baptized in response to our faith. But I don't baptize myself. That means that there's somebody who shared the gospel with me. I confess Jesus. They recognize I really did confess the right Jesus. I believe the right gospel. And then there's an audience who sees the baptism, go public with the faith, and they affirm that. So there's an appraisal where your faith is personal, but not private. And I need the church's affirmation of my faith to increase my confidence that I am truly safe. So that appraisal is a great way of saying it. So yeah, as good Baptists, I think there's a great way to interpret this text. Yeah. You can read Revelation 21 here, behind this in life of the world to come. But the text ends by saying, or this is me explaining it, the Garden of Eden before the fall was a prototype of God's intention for the final state of us, his redeemed creation. Our final state will be in the new Edenic creation, where the first day will be best. There ever was and each day better than the one that came before it. So the part of this creed, then the conclusion is the creed is an elegant gift to the church that promotes, protects, and proclaims the core gospel message, filioque controversy aside. The majority of churches down to this very day still use the Nicene Creed in worship services whether it's corporate recitation, confession of the gospel before the Lord's Supper, or for those being baptized. This is a beautiful statement of the gospel. I would encourage you to read it and reread it and become familiar with it because it would benefit your soul. Let me pray for us, and you can leave. Um, if you're going to stay and talk, please go into the hallway because I will stay and take questions. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you for our grandfathers in the faith. Thank you that you are not like us, O Lord. Thank you that even in your being yourself, it will take all eternity to marvel and to worship and wonder and praise you simply for who and what you are, one God in three persons. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a kind God who has made us in your image and have stepped down in the person of your son to rescue lost sinners. Adopt us into your family so that we could simply call you Abba, Father. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, questions. Oh, there's no class next week. We're not meeting next week. I am down in Phoenix at a thing. So we'll pick up the following week, Lord willing. Yes.
5: Okay, I have a question now. All I right. wanted to wait because it was slightly off topic.
0: Good.
4: Um,
5: but it's a bit of a follow-up about Anita's earlier question about the father doesn't submit to the son.
4: Yeah.
5: And it's, it's a little complicated what I wrote down. But basically I was wondering, the whole thing of the son being begotten but not created, also submitting to the father when he was on earth, is that a whole part of him becoming man and taking our place in our sins of, you know, that sin of us being unsubmissive to the father's will and to the father's plan. And also how you said that the son and the father share a, like the same will and the same desires to be carried out. Is that part of the whole, like him submitting to the father is, um, him like facing the human emotions of like doubt and be like, I don't want to be submissive, but I am. And now that he is up in heaven, seated at the right hand, does he still submit to the Father, or does that not happen?
0: So there's three <laughs> questions in there. That was good. Yeah. So that, that was a good overview, so give the first one again. Okay. So I, the first, I want to make sure I answer them. Okay. try to.
5: Sorry. So the first question was basically the whole part of the son submitting to the Father, but the Father doesn't submit to the Son. Mm-hmm. Is the Son submitting to the Father part of Jesus becoming man? And submitting to the Father's will as part of our sin of not submitting. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, can you explain that whole part of why the Son submits but the Father doesn't? And does that have to do with Jesus being incarnate?
0: Yes. So, when we when we read Scripture, um, I cannot think of the address of the passage, but... Um, I delight to do your will. And it's cited in the the New Testament. And I can't think of either address. But when the Bible describes the ad intra relationship within himself, the Trinity, the Son is described as delighting to do the Father's will. So it was the Son who became incarnate, not the Father or the Spirit. And um, I guess I'll just stop at that. I don't know if that answers your question or not. There, There is, there is debate about the um, what's called the eternal subordination of the Son. And frankly, I am just not up to speed on that. But the majority of um, renowned theologians reject that idea of the eternal subordination of the Son. However, as to his humanity, Jesus is always the Son of David, Son of Man, Son of God, last Adam. So in that sense, as to his humanity, he's relating to the Father a certain way, but it gets into some complex theological waters that I'm... I'm just not versed on to comment on. Was there, Was there, That was two questions. Do you have a third one? I think I answered one and three, but I don't know what number two was.
5: I have a lot, but I can pass the microphone off to other people and come up and talk Th- to you. Throw out one
0: more, and then we'll circulate it.
5: Okay. Uh, the other one was just like, now that Jesus has gone up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, you mentioned that like he didn't become de-incarnate, yeah. right? Like all of – yeah, all he went up to heaven – Does he still submit to the father? Or not anymore now that he's
0: yeah. That's that eternal subordination of the son comment. Um so he's still the son. And see my previous statements. Yeah. Yeah, I think right behind
4: you. Uh kind of relates to the previous question that i had and uh, one of you just kind of answers on the special part of uh, incarnation i think what really resonated with me was um the fact that it's not just the spiritual but the physical presence of the lord on earth that like he's not just gonna whisk us away and if that makes kind of sense but more of the implications on that is um what does that mean for us currently as Christians
0: who are living in a broken world? Yeah, that's really good. So you could develop a whole theology of the physical world on that. Mm-hmm. So I think that we Christians, um, different pockets and different ideas, that we, we can become functional Gnostics. And what I mean by that is Gnostic, Gnosticism and plato and just a lot of ideas out there and then even with the rise of lg lgbtq plus which is modern day gnosticism with like especially transgenderism um or that you that you can self-create and self-identify within yourself means that the spiritual immaterial you is the real you and the outside you is not the real you and so you can change your gender or change identifies an animal whatever it is that, that someone wants to do that's that's the that's the ancient heresy of Gnosticism that the spiritual is better. Christians can get into that mindset um, when it gets to sexuality that sexuality is dirty or bad somehow. Um, it's bad outside of marriage or within marriage there could be negative views or somehow that um, the, the the flesh world that that our flesh is bad. So the thing is our flesh has fallen meaning our physical self has fallen. But it's it's part of God's good creation that's fallen, and so when we are glorified, we're going to get new glorified bodies, which undoes the curse of the curse upon us—entropy, aging, death, sorrow, sickness—all of those things. Our uh, ability to sin will be removed from us. So I think as Christians living right now, we should uh, be good stewards of the physical world, of ourselves. Uh, but we still look to the new creation and our new glorified bodies. But it would be an error to um, jettison the physicality of the world. And I think one thing that, that um, you know, you guys need to go this week up to Aspen Corner and check out the leaves before they blow off. And walk around and look in there and think at how beautiful these colors are. And that's just a foretaste that, that is not even a foretaste of the glory of what heaven's going to be. So we should use the physicality of the world to cause us to long more for heaven, but we should not be functional Gnostics and think that the spiritual world is better. Hope that makes sense.
5: So I obviously believe that the triune God is eternal. Uh, How could he not be? But it kind of sounds like the filioque when it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Like at first glance, it's like suggesting that it's created and not eternal. So could you kind of explain that a little better?
0: Yeah, so that's where the – that's what – if I understand correctly, that's the problem the Eastern Orthodox have with the addition of that statement. Whereas the Western church is saying, well, now hold on a second, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus. So so there's, you see kind of both sides talking past each other. One of the ways that's it's described, so, so think about how the creed says that Jesus is begotten but not made. Because begotten sounds like he's created. So begotten before all worlds. So they're trying to say, the Bible uses language to describe the Son as begotten. Eternally begotten, whatever that means. Well, how do we describe the spirit? And the Western church says that the spirit spirates. He proceeds from the father and son eternally. In the same way that Jesus is eternally begotten, not made, the spirit is eternally spirating, but not made. (laughs) There you go. Now, I've heard, you know, I've read C.S. Lewis say this. It's a more poetic, philosophical, theological way of thinking about that um, God is triune; He has always existed, but there's been the Father-Son relationship, and then oftentimes the Spirit is described as the um, Father-Son love relationship between the between God. I don't know; that's just one way. But I think in the same way that Jesus is eternally begotten, the Spirit eternally. Sp- Proceeds would be a way to answer that. And that would not satisfy an Eastern Orthodox. An Eastern Orthodox person would reject, they would agree the Spirit eternally spirates or proceeds from the Father, but they don't agree that He proceeds from the Son. But either way, He proceeds. Very good question. Complex. What else? Any other thoughts? Comments, clarifications. Maybe it helps clarify it, but in Persian and in Arabic, spirit and breath are the same. So when you look down, they say your breath is down. Your spirit, your face, your spirit is down. Oh. And what she quoted about Jesus telling the apostles, I'm going to send the spirit, then he breathed on them. Yeah. That's beautiful because in Persian, He's, he's his spirit is being proceeding or what yeah coming out in from him which would be perfect about what do you say proceeding yeah and that's and that's also the same in Hebrew and Greek as right. well so to understand it that way it's like that's that's so amazing yeah and that's why it's important in Bible translation uh-huh. to stay true to the original words that's right amen preach it preach it Porter
3: This is a light comment, might be more of a one-on-one. Any reason for our church not to recite the Nicene Creed on the Lord's Day?
0: People would be weirded out by it. So that's a pastoral comment. Um, So it would take time so that people would be accustomed to that if we were to ever ever do it. Um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I think that we would benefit from it. Um, that would be a decision that the elders would make together, and then lead the membership on. I could, fr- if I could just off the cuff, if we were to ever do that, I could see us practice it or do it at a uh, membership meeting, and then once people got familiar with it, then it could potentially happen on a Sunday. But don't hold your breath. Hold on to your spirit, Porter. Yeah. Okay, more questions.
2: So two things. um, With what Anita was saying about the word very, um, it literally translates to poly. So the Nicene Creed says, many God of many God. So it plays back into—well, not plays, but further, you know, accentuates the, the Trinity, which I thought was really beautiful, if you look at the original language.
0: Yeah, yeah. W- one thing that you hear—we'll see this when we get to the—I can't remember if it's the Athanasian Creed or the Chalcedonian definition. They're going to change the words to truly God and truly man. Mm-hmm. Same idea. I mean, there's just a be- There's yeah. the beautiful— Description that, yeah, light from light. Yeah, really good.
2: Interesting. Um, And then one other comment about, um, uh, there's a lot, uh, sorry, a lot of talk about modern day and a lot of people don't believe in God. Um, One book that I can definitely recommend is called God's Debris by Scott Adams. I don't know if you've ever read it. Mm -mm. It's a fascinating 80-page philosophical debate. Um, about how science cannot exist without God and God cannot exist without science and how they intertwine so beautifully and God would have had to have created science for God to exist. It's just, it's a really fascinating read and I highly recommend it.
0: Interesting. sounds really interesting. What else? Any other questions? Comments?
4: Um we might have already kind of been talking about this but one of the interesting things is in the past it was hard for people to wrap around that the physical world could actually be like something good you almost see that a little bit in the modern day too especially like as you see people almost well non-believers it's understandable because they're fearful of death they're fearful of the physical body giving out all I'm saying is I feel like there's a little bit of a tie in where people back then were not understanding the physical like how could a god come down and actually become incarnate and then the other part of it is people now have kind of gone back to that spiritualism where it's the spirit it's how you think feel and act and kind of a rejection of the body
0: in a sense yeah, I mean, there, there's, it's uh, you, so we, but especially you guys now, there's just a, a radically rapid shift on a more open level of what you just said, of the shift back to that Gnosticism we are talking about earlier. Because
4: um, it just seems to be a different degree of it. Like back then, people were like, oh, this is, Physically, the world around us not kind of accepting change, but now we're taking it, like you were saying, that accelerated level of the spirit is all over everything, and we can now kind of change our bodies to kind of
0: conform to that. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's that rapid change. So if you go back – it's always been there, but if you go back even ten years – Less than that. I mean, it's the—I mean, really, like 2020, just everything that happened with COVID and following, and then the shift from BLM to LGBTQ+, plus to right now trans rights being, like, the key issue being discussed. It's just a, it's a rapid uh, change at a, at a public level. I'll say it that way. And I say public, thinking of social media, news outlets— Movies, so it's you know it's Silicon Valley, L.A., Wall Street, and Washington D.C. Um, just that becomes the drumbeat, and so that then that becomes the drumbeat of those of those groups that then that seems like we, that's all we hear, and we're given the impression that's all that anybody's talking about is mm-hmm. is the beauty of transgenderism in all its varieties, which would be what you're talking about the sudden shift culturally. And then so when you look at if, this, if these statistics are true then of people who identify as, say, LGBTQ+, plus or even trans, that at that teen level, right, people are in high school right now or young, middle school, it's just every generation, the numbers are inflating huge of people because they're being seduced by these lies and more. So yeah, it's happening What else? Anything else?
4: Um, The thing I find very concerning, as you brought up, was the children are under – they're coming under this uh, seduction. And I find that especially concerning because didn't Christ talk about – he gave special command about the protection of children or something? I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, if anyone caused these little ones to sin, it would be better that a millstone was tied around his neck and he was thrown into the depths of the sea. Um, there was a, a dude driving a beat-up Suburban with that just like painted across the, his windshield. Uh, I didn't know what the verse was, so I looked it up and like, all right. all right, it's pretty good. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. Going once. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, so, no next week, and then we'll we'll pick up, Lord willing, two weeks from now.